The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. For our text this morning, we're going to be looking in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10. And if I had to title this message, it would be called, Are We Really All Farmers? We're taking a biblical look at the law of sowing and reaping from this text. Now, when you hear that, in in our culture today, when people hear, you you reap what you sow, one of the first things that comes to their mind is karma. You know, good karma, bad karma. It's not the same thing. The, The very foundation of where these two ideas come from is completely different. Karma is an unbiblical, ancient Eastern mystical idea that comes from these Eastern religions. It finds its roots, actually, in Hinduism, Buddhism. That's where karma, the word karma comes from. So it might sound the same on the surface, but the, found, the very foundations are completely different. What happened, though, is, is in the 1960s, very popular, you know, pop icons and different pop culture individuals began to embrace these Eastern philosophies, these Eastern religions, and they brought them to the West. I mean, they were here a little bit, but they weren't as popular. So ideas like karma and just these these Eastern ideas were brought to the West, and then the church began to assimilate these ideas into Christianity. This, this amalgamation, and so you have these ideas, they mean the same thing. And it's, it's similar to, in the ancient church, you had men like Plato, or Socrates, or Aristotle. They were looked very highly on by these early church fathers. And they said, these men are so close to Christianity that let's just take these philosophies from Plato, and let's, let's kind of merge it into Christianity. Let's, let's meld them together, and you come up with something known as Christoplatonism. And most of us growing up, if we, weren't, if we weren't grounded in true Christianity, that's what we believed. We believed in a form of Christoplatonism, that when we die, we go to heaven for eternity, and we live on a cloud, we have wings, we're just a spirit being for eternity. That's not Christianity. That's Platonism. That's Christoplatonism. But that's what we were taught. And so you can see how the effect, it affected a whole culture. It's the same idea with this, these Eastern religions and this karma. It's being brought in to Christianity. So it seems similar on the surface, but it's very different at the foundations. So what is this law, the law of sowing and reaping? Well, it's, it's a basic farming truth, is it not? Whatever you plant, that's what you're going to harvest. If you plant corn, you're going to harvest corn. You shouldn't expect wheat if you're planting corn. You reap what you sow. You should expect whatever you sow or plant, that's what you'll reap or you'll harvest. And the fact of the matter is, when it comes to our lot in life, our our walk, we're all farmers. We're all farmers. Whether we like it or not, when it comes to our lot in life, we're all planting something. Either seed to the flesh, which we'll see will produce corruption, or seed to the Spirit, which will produce life. So we're all planting something. We're all farmers. 
Now, I've been a Christian long enough, about 26 years, and I've been a part of church leadership long enough to see this principle play itself out in the life of individuals. I remember an individual who, when I first, the first, my first experience in church leadership, this individual came to me and he wanted to start a Bible study on Saturday mornings. And I said, okay, let's do it. Let's start a, he wanted to do a, a pan, pancake breakfast and a Bible study. So we started doing that. And this guy was on fire for the Lord. We started having this Bible study. And soon, maybe six months into that, he started teaching Sunday school. He was just on fire. And so I was meeting with him. We were, he really seemed to be growing. And then after a couple of years, he came to me. And he, was tell, he told me, I'm starting to have a problem with pornography. And it's really, it's really drawing me in. So I, I began to counsel him. I began to sit down with him, go through scripture, pray with him. But I noticed after a couple months, he began to spurn my counsel. He began to spurn the counsel from God's word. And then he tells me, I, I've, I've been on the internet and I, I contacted this woman. Just, I'm just talking to her though. We're just, we're, I'm just talking, that's all. And I continue to warn him. This is dangerous. Stay away. Well, eventually, he left the church and he in, indulged in adultery. He divorced his wife. He deserted his children, which I think he had six, six or seven children. He deserted them. He was consumed with lust. He even threatened the church that if we tried to contact him anymore, he was going to call the authorities and all these things. This man is a farmer, and he's sowed to the flesh, and he's harvested corruption in his life. He's harvested a broken family, devastated wife, devastated children, extended family. He's denied God and he's been given over to the lust of his flesh. Friends, we're all farmers. We all are going to reap what we sow. And we're going to see this in our passage. We're going to look at three imperatives in this passage that show us this law to be true and gives us instructions on how to live based on this truth. But before we look at these imperatives, I just need to set the context. We can't just come into the, the sixth chapter of Galatians, near the end of the chapter, just jump in right there. I need to set the context of what's going on. I need to set the, the external context of the book as well as the internal, what's going on from chapter to chapter quickly. I won't spend a lot of time, but first of all, who is the author of Galatians? When was it written? Well, if we look at the very first chapter, very first word, we see it was written by Paul, Paul the Apostle. There's not much debate on this. Paul the Apostle wrote this book. When was it written? Well, we can be pretty confident that it was written between 50 AD and 56. We know it was written around 50 or a little after because he mentions the Jerusalem Council in the book of Galatians, which took place in Acts 13. So it had to be written after AD 50. Probably a good guess would be between AD 50 and AD 56. It's probably the best guess. 
So what do we know about this city of Galatia that Paul wrote this book to and the church that was planted there? Well, we know that this name, Galatia, it came from these barbarian tribes that settled there, the Gauls or the Celts. It settled there. That's where this name came from. There's this big region in modern-day Turkey. Now, there was four churches that Paul and Barnabas planted. This wasn't just one church that was planted there. He planted the church of, let's see, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. We see that in Acts 13 through Acts 14. Those four churches were planted in this region. The letter is most likely to all of them, not just to one. It was most likely passed around. So what's the purpose? What's the theme of Galatians? Most of us in here probably already know the theme and the purpose of Galatians. The book of Galatians was written to defend against this legalism that was seeping in to the churches there. The the Judaizers were in there, and they were teaching a gospel that says, you do need to have faith in Christ, but you also have to follow these rules. Specifically, you have to be circumcised, or you can't be saved. So this letter is, is Paul saying, no, justification comes by faith, plus nothing. You're justified by faith alone. And as we look at the breakdown of this book, it can essentially be broken down into three areas to help you remember. Think of it that way. Think of the book broken down into these these sections. Chapters 1 and 2, you've got justification by faith alone, defended personally. You've got Paul defending justification by faith alone personally. And one and two, okay? Then three and four, you've got justification by faith alone defended in typical Pauline style theologically. So justification by faith alone defended personally, justification by faith alone defended theologically. And then the last two chapters, you see Paul defending justification by faith alone, as he always does, practically. That's how you can break the book down, two chapters at a time. That's the breakdown. Now, as we come to chapter 6, which is our chapter, what's being said in the previous five chapters that kind of brings us to this point? What brings us to this chapter? Well, as we said, the first division is emphasizing justification by faith alone defended personally. So what we have Paul doing here in those first two chapters, he greets the Galatians, first of all, and then he jumps right into scolding them because of their lack of discernment. He's just amazed that they were so quickly deserting the gospel that he preached to them for this other gospel, which is no gospel at all. This justification by faith plus plus works. He tells them, even if we or an angel from heaven would come and preach to you a different gospel, they're to be accursed. Don't believe them. Don't believe us. He was upset with them. And then he begins to defend his apostolic ministry, pointing out his liberty and faith. He wants them to know, I have authority to teach these things. I am an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ. These Judaizers, they have no authority. Stay away from them. And then just to add to that, he he reminds them of his confrontation of Peter. I, I confronted Peter when he was beginning to do this. He was beginning to pull away from the Gentiles. So he's showing them his authority. And then chapter 2 ends by saying that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ just died for nothing. It's not by the law. That's the first two chapters. And then chapters 3 and 4, we've got him defending this theologically. And he, he, he refutes this legalism by saying, you foolish Galatians. Once again, he's just upset. 
not at them, but at the, the Judaizers and their lack of discernment. Do you re- he says to them, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Which one was it? Then he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. And in his theological argument, he points out Abraham, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He points out that the law is not to save, but it has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. When I witness to people all the time, they'll say to me, well, the law doesn't, you're not, you don't, you're not under the law. And I'll say, you're absolutely right. We're not saved by the law, but you're condemned by the law. You need to see that you're condemned by the law, and that law, in Galatians tells us, points you to Christ. So that's the purpose of the law. And he's telling them that. Don't think that you're going to be saved by the law. We then come to the next section, and it deals with justification by faith alone, defended practically. It talks about practically walking by the Spirit. If we're walking by the Spirit, he says, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We will not. He then lays out the deeds of the flesh, as well as the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, we come to our section in chapter 6, and we get a definitive answer to that question. Will a man really reap what he sows? Or are we really all farmers? And this is answered in these three imperatives that I was telling you about. So what I want to do now is I want to read the text. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Then I'll pray and we'll dig into this, these imperatives. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, I just pray that you would clear our minds from all distractions. I pray that we would be wholly desiring to hear from you what you have for us this morning, that we might put it into practice. Forgive us for our sin, Lord. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to be walking by faith. We thank you for this letter um, from Paul to the Galatians. I just pray that we might take these principles and, and see how pertinent they are for us today. We give this entire uh, day over to you in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, now as we look at this text and we, we see these imperatives, the first two imperatives that we see here are negatives. They're telling us what not to do. In other words, they're telling us what to put off, put away. And then the third imperative is telling us what to do or what to put on, in other words. And the first thing he tells us at the very beginning of this passage is do not be deceived. Look at that, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now this imperative, it can be broken down into three, three sections. If we look at it, first of all, you've got the imperative itself, then, the, then a warning, then the law itself. Let's look at the imperative itself here. First of all, he says, do not be deceived. So right off the bat, we see this call for discernment. I remember when I was in seminary back in California, my pa- pastor John would always tell us that the biggest problem with the church today is a lack of discernment. And that's what Paul's talking about. Do not be deceived. Now this deception that Paul's talking about is coming specifically from the Judaizers, these religious um, zealots, you could say. But this deception can come from many avenues in our day. Many different avenues. The problem is, this, the, the big danger that comes in is when this deception comes in and they're claiming that they, the person who's bringing this deception claims to have authority from God. That's where the big problem is. You know, when you've got these teachings, you know, saying that they're trying to deceive you but they're satanic or these things, we know those are, we're not we're going to stay away from those. But when the deception comes in and the person who's bringing it claims to have authority from God, that's where the big problem is in the church. When it's been taught in the name of God, it has a greater potential to do harm than if it's taught in the name of Satan or by your own authority. It's the biggest threat to the church. I mean, we think of religions like Hinduism, Buddhism. You know, they're, we know they're wrong, but they're not a huge threat within the church because we, we're discerning in those areas. But when you have certain movements within the church, like the emergent church movement, which is a few years ago now, but these movements that sound so much like Christianity, if you don't do your research, if you're not digging in, you can easily be deceived. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel. These things have, they're so close to true Christianity. That's a very dangerous place to be. And then you also have the big the bigger cults that also say that they have authority, Jehovah's Witnesses. They use the Bible. It's their own translation, but they use the Bible and they'll, they'll come to your door and they'll show you things from the Bible. And if you don't know, if you're not discerning, you may just scratch your head and say, wow, that sounds right. You need to be discerning. You need to be into word. Be able to defend what you know is the truth. Or the Mormons, they as well, they claim that the Book of Mormon has authority. They claim that their teaching is authoritative. It's dangerous. These kinds of deceptions are very dangerous. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24 through 26, for false teachers and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance so that, so if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. So the key is we have to have a strong, robust understanding of, Christ, of the Bible. We need to understand what we believe, why we believe it, and not be deceived into going those directions. We need to understand Orthodox theology in general. It's so, it's so important. 
the better understanding you have of a true biblical theology, the less likely you are to be deceived. 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 16, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So keep, to keep from being deceived, study God's word. Meditate on God's word. Know God's word. Now, immediately after giving this imperative, we have a sober warning for us to remember. He says, do not be deceived. And then he gives us this warning. He says, God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It's interesting, if you look at the Greek word used here for mocked, the word here that's used is mukterizo, and it, it means to turn up the nose at. We, we will say sometimes, man, that person's stuck up. That's what the word indicates, turning the nose up at. To sneer. So the idea here is that God lets no one do that with impunity. God will not be, be mocked. There will be no looking down your nose at God. This happened in the garden, though, didn't it? We see the deception of Eve was, was party to this. Same kind of mockery. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Turning up the nose at God. You surely won't die. It's mocking God. God will not be mocked. Don't be deceived. You won't get away with this. You, you cannot mock God and come out unscathed. You can't live for the things of this world, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and not reap the consequences for that. So the text goes on, it immediately states the law itself. So it says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, and then it states the law. It says, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. There it is. That's the law of sowing and reaping. Now, as we think through that, it, it, we need to understand that the believer, it's interesting to point this out, the believer has two fields they can sow in. But the unbeliever, they only have one field they can sow in. That's the field of the flesh because they're spiritually dead. If you were at the, the Doctrines of Grace conference, you, you, you heard that. We're spiritually dead. So that's the only field they can sow in is the field of the flesh. The believer can sow in either the field of the flesh or the field of the split spirit. And the text tells us that if we do choose to sow in the field of the flesh, it will produce corruption. Just as we saw in our intro. It says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. So what exactly is he talking about there? Corruption. Well, the corruption here is referring to uh, degeneration or decay, going from something beneficial to something harmful or something rotten. Say you, you want to have steak one night. You take your steak out, you lay it on the counter in, in the window, and you get called away for a week or two. In the middle of July, and the sun is beating down on the steak. You get back, you're not going to say, oh, that's fine, let's, let's eat that. It's going to be rotten. It's going to smell. Same idea. Went from something good to something rotten. The deeds of the flesh are always, make no mistake about it, the deeds of the flesh are always corruptive. Always. 
They only make a person progressively worse. Listen to this quote I got from John Stott. He says, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure thought, wallow in self-pity, we're sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up praying, every time we look at pornographic literature, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we're sowing, sowing, sowing the flesh. That's a great quote. So let me just get personal here. Young people, are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the spirit? Are you wasteful with your time? Do you use your time wisely or do you waste it? This will come back to bite you later when you're an adult and you're on your own. Or do you use your time wisely? The, the habits that you're forming now are seeds that you're planting. You're not going to all of a sudden change one day. You're, you're planting seeds now and you're going to reap that harvest later. Your disrespect for authority, your foolish behavior, all of those things are seeds that you're planting. This will produce a harvest of hardship for you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. How about husbands? Dads? Are you diligently leading your families in the things of God? If not, it will produce a devastating harvest. Whether it be children who are, are not grounded in the scriptures and they're extremely susceptible to the outside world's influence or a wife who's bitter and she and your children see you as a weak spiritual leader, well, no, to be sure they won't say that, but they see you that way because that's what you are. You're planting seeds of a weak spiritual leader. They're going to see you as weak because when you were supposed to be leading, your wife had to lead the family when you were acting like a child. Wives, moms, are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the spirit? Are you constantly angry towards your kids or your husband? Constantly complaining? Are you being a hindrance rather than a help to your husband? Are you uh, being an encouragement to him or are you always nagging him, always criticizing his decisions? If that's you, you'll reap a harvest of children who have a distorted view of God. They'll see you as a selfish, controlling, and angry person. They may not say that, but they'll see you that way. And once again, they'll see their father as a weak individual. Spiritually weak. And so those are just some of the dangers of sowing to the flesh. But the, the text goes on to say that those who sow to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So to sow in the field of the Spirit is the same as, as walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5, 16 through 24. It's the same thing. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So how does one walk or sow, how does one walk by the Spirit? Or how does one sow to the Spirit? You hear that a lot. Walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? How do I do that? 
Well, Galatians 5.22 tells you exactly how to do that. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, when you walk by the Spirit, you're in essence being controlled by the Spirit. You're characterized by these things. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're being controlled by the Spirit. You're drawing near to God. You're in prayer. You're meditating on the Word. That's how you walk by the Spirit. Well, so far in the text, we've seen that we're not to be deceived concerning this principle. God is not mocked. We will indeed reap what we sow. The next imperative we see in the text tells us that since this law of sowing and reaping is true, since this is a true statement in Scripture, we have hope as Christians. We have hope and should not be discouraged. We're not to grow weary. Look at the text. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's a great reminder for us as Christians to persevere. Persevere. Be faithful to the end. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We need to be patient in our Christian life. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 lays this out wonderfully. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against him, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He endured hardship of the cross. He endured the hostility by sinners against him, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and run. Don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. If you've been serving the Lord for years, walking by the Spirit, and yet there seems to be little to no blessing from the Lord, don't throw in the towel. This isn't the time to, to quit. We're told in Scripture to keep on, keeping on, be patient and steadfast. 1 Corinthians 1558 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So even though at times our toil may seem to be in vain, it's not. Go back to the text. In our text, it says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You can count on it. Now, this isn't the same as, I've talked to people before, and they'll say, you know, Joe, I'm just burned out. I'm just burned out. But the truth, a lot of times when I hear that, 
and I dig a little bit deeper. The fact of the matter is, they're burned out because their expectations, a lot of times with me, it's people who are in ministry, or full-time ministry, their expectation is not met. They had this expectation for what ministry was supposed to be like, and it wasn't met. They didn't get what they wanted, so now they're burned out. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about you or I being mad or feeling sorry for ourselves because we didn't get what we wanted in ministry. No, this is a weariness from pouring oneself out into service for the Lord time and time again over years, a long period of time, and seeing no or very little fruit for the Lord. Not because we didn't get what we wanted. We're not discouraged because we didn't get that. But we're weary because we're not seeing the work of the Lord bringing forth fruit for him. It's about him. It's about his glory. And here in Galatians, we're being encouraged to press on, to stay faithful. In 2 Timothy, Paul's using Timothy, he's urging, sorry, Timothy to continue continue on when this opposition is coming upon him. He's urging him, Timothy, don't give up. Press on. He says this in 2 Timothy 4.15. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Don't get discouraged. And then Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you're growing weary today, weary in doing good, look to Scripture for encouragement. Look to Christ. Remember the saints of old. Remember Noah. Noah, think of Noah. This man, Peter tells us in in 2 Peter 2.15, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah was a preacher And he's preaching to his neighbors. And he's building this ark for 120 years. He's preaching to his neighbors and building his ark. You think your neighbors are getting sick of you sharing the gospel? (laughs) He was doing this for 120 years before the flood came. How many converts outside of his family did Noah see? Zero. How many people got on the ark? Just his family. Yet he kept building the ark. He kept obeying the Lord. Year after year. And finally, one day though, he felt a raindrop. It started to rain. And it kept raining. And it kept raining. And he saw that the ark that he had built became a means of salvation for those who trusted in God. Those who believed God were saved. So he saw the fruit of his labor in that aspect. He saw this played out. So look to Noah if you get discouraged. Look to the prophets. You could look to all of them, but specifically maybe look to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, God sent this man to preach to the southern kingdom a message of repentance, a warning, essentially. Why? What what was going on? Why was God having Jeremiah preach this warning message to the southern kingdom? Well, during the time of Jeremiah, the the spiritual condition of Judah was of just blatant idol worship. Believe it or not, 
Long before Jeremiah's time, King Ahaz had set up a system of sacrificing their children to the god Molech. Sacrificing their children. Now, Hezekiah, yes, that's true. Hezekiah came along, and there was some reprieve there. He started to make some reforms to clean things up. But as we all know, Hezekiah died, and his son, Manasseh, came to power, who was really bad. And Manasseh, it was a a horrible king. He reinstated this child sacrifice, and many of the people began to worship the queen of heaven. It was just a horrible situation that Jeremiah stepped into and began to preach a message of repentance. It was a wicked time for the nation. Adultery was prevalent, injustice, tyranny against the helpless, murderous slander. All of this was the norm as Jeremiah came on the scene. He preached for 40 years. And not once did he see any real success in changing the heart softening the heart of these people. They were stubborn, idolatrous. Now, to be sure, Jeremiah became discouraged. What do we call Jeremiah? We call him the weeping prophet. He wrote lamentations. I mean, he was the weeping prophet, so he was discouraged. He did grow weary. However, in his weeping and in his doubt, God reminds him, just as he reminds us, to not be discouraged because God is with us. We see in Jeremiah 15, 19 through 21, just after Jeremiah prays this prayer of doubt, of discouragement, God answers him. And he says, therefore, this is what the Lord says, if you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. I am with you to rescue you and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. That's God's response to Jeremiah's discouragement, his weeping. I am with you. He wants Jeremiah to be encouraged. God will deliver him, and God will deliver us as well. He will deliver us from our weariness. He'll he'll deliver us from our spiritual discouragement, our spiritual depression. Now, this exhortation from Paul is not only for men like Jeremiah. It's not only for these great Stalwarts of the faith, Martin Luther, this is for us. This exhortation is for all Christians. Weary, just, if you're just in the midst of the weariness of life, life gets weary, just trying to live a holy life, just trying to please God. You get burdened by just the constant, relentless nature of opposition. It's just constant. You grow weary. The only fruit you seem to see in your walk with the Lord seems to be burdensome. And sometimes, even well-meaning believers can put another heavy burden on your back that once again adds to your discouragement. Think of Job's friends. 
They meant well. They meant well. They came to Job, but their words were burdensome to Job. They just put more of a burden on him. He just wanted them to listen or just be there with him. These were words without love or compassion. These men were just clanging symbols. And you probably have people in your life like that. Who they, they mean well, but they just are clanging symbols. They, they constantly want to tell you what you're doing wrong. But it's usually based on their own preferences, not on Scripture. They're just always telling you, this, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. But it's their preferences. That's a heavy burden. That's, a, that's putting the law, making it heavy on your shoulders. Or sometimes if it is based on Scripture, it's said in a way that's not helpful, it's not compassionate. We need to speak the truth to be sure, but we need to do it in love. There's a big difference when someone comes to confront you or, or show you an area of, of sin in your life when they're a good friend, they come alongside you and they're, they're gentle with you and they're praying with you. There's a difference between that and they're just coming and having a list and saying, you did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. That's burdensome. When, when you're constantly picked apart and told everything you're doing wrong over and over and over again, you grow weary, you grow discouraged. You can be tempted to just stop doing good things. Just isolate yourself. I just want to get away from it. I just want to be alone. Because I know if I go here, I'm just going to get picked apart. We need to not be either of those people. We need to not be, and I'm not saying that anybody is. I'm just saying we need to make sure that we're not an individual who's always picking somebody apart based on our preferences. We also need to make sure that we're gracious when somebody comes to us to maybe show us an area that we need to work on. We need to be gracious and understand um, and say, what is, is this person saying is true? Don't get mad at them. But don't isolate yourself. Don't say, I'm not going back to church or I'm not going back to this meeting because I just, I, I can't deal with this. Don't do that. Paul encourages here to keep doing good. He says, if we do in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. And I know it's difficult at times I know it may seem easier to just go along with the world or just live your own little Christian life away from the people of God. I just want to live my own life and do my own thing. I want to be a rogue Christian. But this will do more harm than it will ever do good. You don't need to draw near to the world or near to yourself. You need to draw near to God. James 4, 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You need the encouragement of other believers. You need the body of Christ. You need them and they need you. Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, regarding this weariness, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we're to look to other believers who have persevered in the past. Look to the, the saints of old. Look to the, the prophets. Look to the, the early Christians, those who persevered. Look to those for encouragement. And then look to Christ for encouragement. 
Don't be discouraged. So we've seen in the text with regard to this principle of sowing and reaping, we're not to be deceived. We will, in fact, reap what we sow. Second, we saw that since this is true, we're not to be discouraged or weary. And now finally, in verse 10, we move from the negatives to the positives. We go from hearing what not to do to hearing what we should do. And we're to be faithful in doing good. So don't be deceived, don't be discouraged. Be faithful in doing good. So then, in verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now notice very, the first thing he says there is, so then. In other words, since these things are true, since God is not mocked and therefore you will reap what you sow, since this is true, here's what you should be spending yourself doing. It then says, while you have opportunity. This is not only referring to some specific opportunity. Okay, this day I had this opportunity. It's referring to the whole of your Christian life. This is your opportunity now that you're a Christian. Use this opportunity, your whole life. As a believer, you do have a limited amount of time to do good for the Lord. So don't waste that opportunity. Or as John Piper says in his book by the same name, don't waste your life. You have a limited time. I know we all like to think we're going to live a long time. But we don't know when our time is. So don't waste the time we have. I like this quote by C.T. Studd. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What a great reminder. And then, and then Paul reminds us to, to make the most of our time in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 5 through 17, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Because why? Because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So don't waste your time. Now, as our text goes on, we see that we're told that since this principle is true, while we have opportunity, we need to do good. And as we look at this, first thing we see here, we see this broad statement about who we're to be doing good to. And then we see the author get a little more specific and give an emphasis that narrows in on a second group. So let's consider these two distinctions. First of all, the broad statement. Let us do good to all people, he says. So who's this referring to? Well, if you look, it's, it's very interesting. If you look up this word in the Greek, the word for all, it's pas. And you know what the word means? It means all. It means every. It doesn't mean only those you like. Only those who have the same views as you, whether it be politically or whatever. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean only the rich or only the poor. It includes everybody. And that means that even includes Michigan State fans. It even includes Hoosier fans or Alabama fans. Now, Buckeye fans, that's a different story. But <laughs> seriously, though, we're exhorted to do good to all people. Now, use the, the word that's used here for good, it carries the idea of, of this internal goodness. That's the, talking about the fruit of the Spirit that just comes forth. 
It's not just good that you're doing because you want something back. It's an internal good that comes forth. The fruit of the Spirit. It's a good that's unrestricted and it's to be shown to all people. And this, this fruit can be seen in several ways. One of which is it's a get good testimony. As you're, you're, you're doing good, you're living for the Lord, it's a great testimony to the unsaved. First Peter 2, uh, verses 12 and 15, Peter says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So it's a good testimony as you're doing good to all people. That's one of the best ways to thwart criticism against Christians. Be loving the unsaved. Be be loving the world, all people. All all people. Show a genuine concern for unbelievers and their family. That'll accomplish much. You can have the greatest, you can be the greatest apologetic in the world. You can have this wonderful, very refined apologetic argument. And somebody hears it, and 10 minutes later they forget it. However, the kindness of a caring Christian will not soon be forgotten. It won't. Now, I'm not saying you throw apologetics out the window, but make sure you're doing this. You're loving them. This will have long-term effects on the individuals. Make sure you're not just spewing out these apologetic arguments because you have so much head knowledge. Nobody cares about your head knowledge unless you're loving them and showing them, investing in their life. Remember, your good deeds will produce a harvest if you don't grow weary. Continue to do good to all people, and it will produce a harvest. Continue to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit to the unbelieving world. Exhibit love, exhibit joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Make sure all these things are exhibited in your life. As a Christian, they should see something different about you. When you interact with the lost world, exhibit this fruit as you you do good to them and you'll reap a harvest that brings glory to God. Now, Paul closes out this pericope here by giving an emphasis to a smaller group. Just a smaller group. Let us do good to all people and then he goes to the narrower emphasis, which is especially to those who are of the household of faith. This reminds us that the first test of a love for God is whether or not one loves their brothers and sisters in Christ. To say uh, you love God, but then to say you don't love the church or the body of Christ is a misguided statement at best. Because remember, Christ died for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't love Christ and not love the church. We should be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 4.20-21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 
Now, unfortunately, in the church today, there's much, much infighting, much strife. Not the church, Mary and Ethel, I'm talking about the church, the, the universal church. There's much infighting, much strife among believers. That's a bad testimony to the watching world. Now, this isn't to say that, that compromise should take place in the essential areas of doctrine. Of course, we don't compromise justification by faith alone. We don't compromise the Trinity. We don't compromise the deity of Christ. But there are some issues that we need to be careful on how we approach these issues and how we, we talk about them. We can engage in, these, in other issues without doing it in a divisive way, in a, in a harmful way. This kind of sowing makes for joyful reaping. As you're sowing love for other Christians, you're, you're doing the one in others. Remember that uh, series we did, I think it was a couple years ago already, or last year, on the one in others. Go back and listen to that again. Get involved in, in serving the body, engaging in the one in others. Well, this morning, we've looked at the law of sowing and reaping. We ask the question, will an individual truly reap what they sow? And the answer to that question is yes, they will reap what they sow. Either they'll reap corruption, they sow to the flesh, or life eternal, they sow to the spirit. That eternal life doesn't just mean salvation, it means always continually reaping life, not death. We saw that we're not to be deceived about this in verses 7 and 8. Don't, God is not mocked, sow to the flesh and you'll reap corruption. We saw that we're not to be discouraged or grow weary because of this. Verse 9, keep on keeping on. Stay faithful to the end. Be sure that God will produce a good harvest from the good seed that's planted. And then we saw that we're to be faithful in doing good. While we're still breathing, while we still have breath in our lungs on this planet, we're to be doing good to all, and especially the household of faith, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't waste your life. Now, as you leave here today, be sure you understand this principle. It's not karma. It comes from a very different place. It comes from the God of the universe. It's the law that originates with God. It'll hold true in your life and mine. So just think about this today. As you leave, what kind of seed are you planting? What field are you planting in? Are you planting to the flesh, or are you planting to the spirit? Are you sowing the flesh, or are you indulging in the desires of the, or are you, are you sowing to the flesh, indulging in the desires of the spirit, the desires of the flesh, or are you planting to the spirit and exhibiting the fruit of the spirit? Because as I said, one leads to death, the other leads to life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, for this passage and for this truth. I pray that we would be walking by the Spirit, that we would be sowing 
to the Spirit, that you would be leading and guiding us in this, that we would be loving our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd be reaching out to the world and, and showing them the love of Christ as well, that we would be a good testimony. Father, help us not to get discouraged. Help us not to be deceived, not to get discouraged, knowing that we will reap a harvest of life if we continue faithfully sowing to the Spirit. It's in your Son's holy name we pray all these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.